might even know their faces. But do you know why they are Difference Makers? Welcome to Difference Makers, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories and insights from Savannah's key players, the men and women who lead our city in commerce, in arts and culture, in philanthropy, in government, and in education. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Thank you for listening. Rob Hernandez is a polarizing public figure. Hired in 2016 to be a leader, not a caretaker, for Savannah's city government, Many of his moves have caused public angst. He streamlined the organizational chart, championed the sale of several city-owned properties, pushed for the since-failed fire fee, and helped refine the vision for the arena and canal district, among other things. Hernandez is also, to the surprise of many, engaging and approachable. He might not agree with you, but he enjoys a good discussion, which is exactly what we'll share with you today. be joined now by Rob Hernandez, city manager of Savannah. And Rob, if you do a little bit of research on you, it seems like your life pretty much began in as a assistant or as a deputy county manager in Fulton County. Uh, from talking to you a little bit earlier, I understand that it goes a little bit more than that. It's a pretty fascinating story. And, you know, naturally I could say, okay, when were you born? But let's go back even farther than that. Can you kind of tell us a story about about your parents and and where they came from sure i'd love to and first of all thank you for allowing me to spend some time with you this morning and and have this conversation with you and and all of our uh, uh, residents here in in savannah i I really um, am grateful for the opportunity to come in and have this conversation i I think i think it's helpful so I guess the Rob Hernandez story begins, and let me just say this. No one's ever going to write a book about it. No, you won't <laughs> see a movie because it'll be very boring, I guess. You never um, know. Um, the story begins, I guess, with my parents. Both my mother and father um, were uh, immigrants from Cuba. Both came over at separate times to, uh, to the United States. Uh, my father came over before the revolution. Uh, legally, I might add. And um, my mother um, was actually... Um, um, here in the United States on a tourist visa when the United States um, severed relations with, with Cuba. And um, basically she was given an opportunity to, to stay, and, and she stayed. And so they met in New York City, um, probably somewhere around 1962 or so uh, in Manhattan, and got married and ha- had a family. Uh, we lived in Manhattan for a couple years, and then we moved uh, right outside the Bronx in a uh, a little town that was, reminds me a lot of Savannah, and a town called Yonkers, New York. And um, and I, I grew up in Yonkers till I was basically thirteen, and uh, from there we we moved to Florida in the late seventies when there was a very um, severe recession that was hitting the Northeast at that time. Uh, my parents were very hard workers. Um, my father was a construction worker most of his life. And my mother was uh, was a seamstress in a factory, and she she made clothing for children. And at that time, in the late 70s in New York, all those factories were closing and moving to lower-cost areas of the South before those factories eventually shuttered and, and moved overseas. And so uh, my parents did that. Um, I went to high school in Florida. Um, and while I was in high school, 
um, I started getting a yearning for public service, believe it or not. And I joined the Army at the age of 17. And between my junior year and my senior year in high school, the uh, Army afforded me the opportunity to go off and, and, and do basic training, which kind of helped kind of get my life in order and brought a little bit of structure um, to my life. And then well, after I graduated from high school in Florida, I went off to the University of Houston for a little bit and studied architecture. Um, and it was there at the University of Houston that I really discovered that my passion was in public service and public administration and political science. And uh, at that point, I changed uh, majors, went back to Florida, and the rest is history. Yeah, I want to back up on you a little bit. Okay. So both your parents, very hardworking, very blue-collar. How do you think that influenced you? I mean, obviously, you, went, you joined the Army, so the hard work and discipline were part of your life. Is there yeah. anything else that you really have pulled away from your parents' experience growing up in that environment? Well, I guess when I look back at it, you know, life was growing up in Yonkers, New York, and during that time was was very hard. Um, you know, we were not by any shape of the equation um, middle class. We were probably on the uh, the lower side of that. Um, you know, my father worked hard, and I just remember him waking up very early, four, three, and four o'clock in the morning to to go to work as a as a construction worker and. And sometimes he would work six and seven days a week, and sometimes he wouldn't work at all because of the brutal winters that we used to have in New York at the time. Mm -hmm. And again, my mom, you know, going to work in a factory, um, getting up early and going to work. And, um, you know, they, they, they taught me that, you know, in order for you to succeed, you've got to work hard at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so... I guess from them, I, I walked away with that hard work ethic. Right, right. So another thing I think you probably pulled from your experience growing up in New York was a love for architecture. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of walk us through what really kind of drove your fascination in that as a young man? Well, I mean, growing up in New York City, you know, it is um, what, a, what a great playground, right? Mm -hmm. um, the architecture, the, the planning, the parks, the great public spaces, uh, the transportation infrastructure. And so I fell in love with buildings, you know, growing up. And I just remember as a young teen, always constantly drawing buildings and building renderings and coming up with architectural ideas and, and so forth. And, and, and I thought that I really wanted to be an architect. Mm -hmm. And so um, my love, my passion for, for good architecture, um, I thought translated into going off to University of Houston to try to become an architect. And um, I found out that it was really more of a passion for me, um, and, and so um, I abandoned my my quest to become an architect after the second year. Yeah, I think you called it architorture. Architorture is what we called it. Yes, maybe at SCAD is different, but at yeah, at University of Houston, let me tell you, it was it was architorture. <laughs> so when you made that transition, and I know that your your experience in the military and in the ROTC kind of influenced your change in direction what pushed you from architecture to public administration as i was a struggling and hungry architecture student at the university of houston i started to to one of the things that concerned me was um you know actually you know uh, being a hispanic background when i went to u of h i was really i guess concerned about the status of 
certain minority groups in around in and around the University of Houston. There were a lot of at that time there were a lot of poor neighborhoods surrounding the University of Houston's main main campus and um, African American neighborhoods, um, Hispanic American neighborhoods, and I was really disappointed and, and bothered by what I saw and. I started getting involved in activities with um, Hispanic students at, at on campus to make life better in some of the neighborhoods surrounding the, the campus. And so that was kind of my, my initial foray into public policy. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's where I learned that, you know what, I'd like to make a difference at some point while I'm on this planet. Mm-hmm. And so I said... I'm not going to be able to make that big of a difference designing grocery stores or houses and things like that. And I said that I thought I could make a difference if I got into the field of public administration. Mm-hmm. I chose administration over political science for a variety of reasons, but I thought, again, I could, I could do more on the administrative side. And I changed my majors and went back to Florida and started working in local government. And I've done everything from cleaning transit buses uh, my uh, to being a police dispatcher to code enforcement officer to um, running um, housing developments for the county's housing authority and you know um, and everything in between and along the way you you were in the reserve I was in the army reserves uh, as, as well and um, it was my time in Houston that I uh, became aware of um, a, a military specialty called um, civil affairs and that is essentially the the military version of public administration, and uh, recognizing the fact that when the military goes to war, the military um, does not operate in a sterile environment. We we like to look at movies and see these giant armies coming across these big plains, you know, with tanks and so forth. Well, it doesn't or or the desert. Most combat operations don't operate like that, and you've got people, um, and the military has to take care of civilians and for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to get into here, but um, but I decided to get into that part of, of military life because I enjoyed public administration, administration. I enjoyed wearing the, the, the uniform and being part of this great country's army, uh, military, and so I got to do both. I got to serve the military and at the same time do something that I love, and that is public administration, um, and help minimize civilian interference with combat operations. And I did that for a long time, and I eventually retired as, a, as an instructor um, um, in that field. And, you know, um, I got to deploy with the military in four different uh, occasions. Um, during the invasion of Panama, we went down, and I was part of a group that basically helped run the military, the the national government, until they were able to uh, the civilians were able to sustain the takeover operations. I did that in Panama, did that in in Homestead, Florida, following Hurricane Andrew. Um, got to work on a major refugee crisis during the the early 1990s, and then um, I, I did another year on active duty um, during. Uh, Enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom during the big surge when we were getting folks trained to deploy all over the all over the globe. Right. Now, obviously, managing operations in that setting is a lot different than managing operations in in a, in a peacetime in a regular sure. municipal setting. And I know that you did three different stints as a deputy administrator in different areas. Yeah. How much of a 
transition was it? How much could you borrow from this to bring to this? What? How did that all come out? Well, I'm very fortunate, I think, to have had the opportunity to work in great organizations and for great leaders and great administrators. And, and I've had probably the best mentors you could any administrator could have. Um, I, I worked for and learned from very successful administrators. And so I, I think that I, I was very fortunate to have spent many years in the county manager's office in Broward, um, not as not not just as a deputy, but as an assistant too. I spent five years, and that was basically a level b- b- below a deputy, where um, you know I got my hands involved in, in in a lot of public policy issues. I did that for five years, then went off, became a deputy county manager in Fulton County for three. Went back to South Florida as a deputy city manager for a fantastic city there. And then went back to Broward for another three-year stint as the deputy county manager there before coming here. And again, great learning environments, um, worked with fantastic elected officials, fantastic administrators, and that, um, I'd like to say, um, contributed to my ability to 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 work here as, as your city manager. Yeah. It, they gave me a great foundation. I know part of Broward was to do some firefighter training, and it mm-hmm. a couple months ago we had Jeff Hadley in mm-hmm. for this podcast, and of course when he was in Kalamazoo, he was in charge not just of the police but the fire, and he talked about you know carrying the hoses mm-hmm. and having the, the the helmet and all the gear in the car, and how much of that firefighting was that was that just fun or? <laughs> I wouldn't say it was fun. I, I will tell you this: having gone through the fire academy, I learned. I never really wanted to be a firefighter. Um, those men and women, um, very brave men and women, I'm, yes. I'm, I might add, they have a very tough job. And so I appreciate what they do. Um, but I was at a point in my career where I felt uh, that I had to I had to go through the fire academy for a variety of reasons. At that time, I was assigned to – I worked for Broward County, and um, – I would say one of the most turbulent times in that jurisdiction's history um, surrounded the breakup of a regional emergency medical services delivery network. And I got to work on a project. At that time, we had countywide EMS. The county provided EMS services. There was a desire from our municipalities. We had 31 cities at that time. They wanted to do their own EMS for a variety of reasons. I'm a big proponent in regionalization and consolidation of services, and I knew that at that time Broward was heading in the wrong direction with respect to that. We had, uh, I remember doing a, a study, I think back in 1997, 1998, uh, that particular, in that county we were spending over 200 and close to $270 million a year just on fire and EMS services alone. We had 110 fire stations. We had fire stations located across the street from one another because every city, every jurisdiction was doing their own thing. And so I got to work on a program to to help educate the public and let them know that from a service delivery perspective, what we were doing did not make sense. We were spending way too much money. We had way too much duplication, too many fire departments, too many fire stations, too many fire chiefs. We needed to do something different. And I felt that if I was going to be working in a lead capacity on that issue, that I needed to to learn the business. 
So I went through the fire academy, spent time in fire stations to try to learn, you know, what is it that the average firefighter has to do on a daily basis? And what do they, what are the challenges that they face when they go to a, um, to a house that's on fire? And, you know, going through the fire academy, we always said that, you know, what we're doing is putting the wet stuff on the red stuff. Well, it's not that easy. <laughs> Firefighting is actually very complicated. I'm sure. Um, so anyway, that's why I did that, because I figured if I was going to try to help the elected officials and the public understand why it doesn't make sense to have so many fire stations and why it doesn't make sense to spend all this kind of money on fire service, I needed to know the business from the ground up. That's right. That's right. Engross yourself in it. So let's fast forward to today in Savannah, and it's been two years and a month, basically, mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, one city, one direction going forward. Yes. Where where do you think we are, and do you, how, how would you judge the momentum? I, I think we still have momentum. I will tell you that um, over the last two years, we've hit some um, bumps uh, on this journey to uh, our new future. Um, but I still think that we have the momentum. We are moving forward. Um, and whether we're talking about the new arena district or incentivizing new residential development downtown or or implementing initiatives in our neighborhoods like the savannah shines initiative in edgemere sackville you know we're we're focusing on bringing and lifting the entire city into the future revitalizing neighborhoods continuing our our phenomenal growth, seizing upon all of those assets that we have in this community that other communities would love to have, taking all of that, all of those pieces in the puzzle, putting those pieces on the table, and attempting to complete that puzzle. Um, we're, you know, in, in line with that metaphor, we're not any way close to finalizing that puzzle, but we have the right pieces, and we are moving forward. We are putting those pieces together. Um, and that's very uplifting. Um, you know, I, I think you asked me before we walked into the room, you know, what energizes me each and every day to come to work? And, and, and that's what energizes me. The fact that we have all of these assets and so much potential and we're putting all of those plans uh, in motion to hopefully deliver upon our our new history. You know, Tony Thomas made a comment to me the other day and and it stuck with me because we were having a conversation about what we do here in the city both the nine elected officials and our staff and and he said it perfectly when when he said that we are building the city's next new history. A 100 years from now, scholars, students citizens are going to be looking back and saying look what they did in savannah back in 2018 when they decided to move forward with the new uh, uh, the arena and canal district and and taking all making all of, the, all of these decisions that are positioning the city to be successful maybe not today maybe not tomorrow in 2019 or 2020 which although we're trying to do that but we're looking at what do we need to do to make sure that Savannah is going to be successful 60, 80, and 100 years from now? Difference Makers is brought to you today by Do Savannah, the city's best and most comprehensive arts and entertainment resource. Available in print and online and featuring a regular podcast, 
DoSavannah and DoSavannah.com are where Savannians can learn about events, such as the Savannah Food and Wine Festival, which continues through Sunday. Check the website regularly to find information about other things to do in Savannah, such as the upcoming Savannah Book Festival and the Savannah Stopover Music Fair. Let's talk about some of those trans- transformational projects. Okay. And obviously the, the big one on people's minds is the arena and sure. the Canal District. And I know that they're, you know, this is, I can remember visiting that site in, it must have been 2004 with, with Joe Surehouse back then. Mm-hmm. And the talk of the arena, and here we are 14 years later, and there's been a lot of arguments. There's been a lot of, well, let's look at other sites. We settled on a site now, and yet there's still a lot of, uh, the squeaky wheel gets grease, but there's still a lot of debate over the site. And I know that that you're very much committed to the site. Can you kind of talk about what you see in terms of that site? Yes. Um, Adam, when I visit that site and I stand on that um, former concrete um, facility that was there. I see the future. I see activity. I see people moving about. I see a new arts, sports, and entertainment hub for our entire region. Again, our job as professional administrators is not necessarily to look at what's there or what once was there. It's to look at what can be. The vision that this city council and its predecessors had in locating this facility on that site was the right vision. Um, They took a gamble. It was a, you know, a a decision that they did not take lightly. There's been some controversy, but it is the right decision. Um, We may not see that today. We may not see that five years from now, but I will tell you 50 years from now, people are going to say, we're lucky that they put this building there. We need to recognize that that part of the city suffers from disinvestment. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to refer to it as an industrial wasteland, but the reality is there isn't a whole lot there. We have some historic neighborhoods on the periphery of that area where the arena is going. But for the most part, there's nothing but there's steel yards, there's vacant lots, old manufacturing, um, and a fantastic historical structure that is going to be the corner piece of this new um, district. And that's the Waterworks Building. And that building was designed in the late 1800s to process and manufacture water, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so that whole area has been all about manufacturing and industrial uses. And what we're doing now is our vision is to first anchor that area with the arena and then introduce some new municipal uses like a modern public safety headquarters. We haven't built one since since the 1840s. Um, Consolidate municipal operations into a new office building um, and build it in that area and that way we can seed the economic activity for that particular district with municipal uses and then you will see because we've put our money where our mouth is and we've invested heavily in that area that is going to attract and entice and incentivize private investment which is what we want you will you will see as a result of the city's efforts you will see more residential complexes coming in and we're envisioning workforce housing coming into that area because that is the ideal area it is close 
to downtown for all of our workers to be able to afford and to commute to their jobs in the downtown area. So you're going to see that. You're going to see the sports fields and the recreation activities and the um, re-energizing of that canal that in our history once was a centerpiece of economic activity. And, you know, for the last probably 200 years, it's just been a drainage ditch. Well, as a result of this arena district, we're going to re-energize all that and we're going to bring more activity to, to, that, to that canal. And so it's the right decision. I firmly believe that. Yeah, to me, that's such a, a big key because that was that was a that was a big concern that people wondered about was okay, we're going to build this new arena here, and we're going to have traffic when there's an event, but what's going to happen the rest of the time? But by locating a lot of weekday nine to five workers in that area, like you said, it's not just you're not just going to have people maybe building a hotel and and a chain restaurants around there. It's actually going to become a vibrant neighborhood during the daytime yes. Monday through Friday. Right. And the other advantage to that is we know we've got to build parking facilities for the arena. It makes absolutely no sense to build a bunch of parking garages that are going to sit empty during the day um, and they're only going to be used at night and on the weekends. And so our thinking is, well, let's bring introduce activities that will allow us to fill up those garages during the daytime and then when everybody leaves then folks that are using the arena and the parks can use those parking garages in the evenings and in in the uh, uh, on the weekends. So it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And and listen, uh, there's a fantastic example uh, up in Sandy Springs, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, where they've built this fantastic new municipal complex with a performing arts theater, and it has enlightened an area that was just you know formerly just strip shopping centers. Now they have this beautiful civic hub. Um, all of these new uh, apartment buildings have come come in surrounding that that facility, and and that's what we're trying to do. And we're going to have the advantage of having a ten thousand seat arena, fantastic event space with the waterworks building, and then you're going to see you know all of this new development at some point. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you know we have told people that that whole district is going to be a fifteen year project. Mm-hmm. There's a flip side to all that, and, and people have been talking about it downtown. Obviously, the city center has become uh, more and more tourism-related the last 10 or 15 years. And as city government moves out of downtown, obviously mm-hmm. City Hall is there. The people that work at City Hall are, are going to be there. There's not a lot of people that work at City Hall. So all these other municipal buildings that were downtown that, that are being sold or being people, staff are being shifted around, people are concerned that you're losing that piece of having a vibrant downtown uh at the same time a lot of those people have already moved out of there right yep. so what is the what are some of the advantages uh to relocating out of the city center so the majority of the city workers that used to be in the broughton municipal building in the gamble they all moved out about a year ago and in fact most of them are are here in this building well, um, this building allowed us to consolidate a lot a lot of our uh a lot of our staff and, and become uh, more efficient I think what you're going to see is actually, you know, municipal buildings are typically activated Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5. Then everybody goes home. With the redevelopment projects that have been proposed for the th- the three main properties, the Gamble Building, the Broughton Municipal Building, and the Liberty Municipal Building, those proposals are going to bring 
life and activity basically 18 hours a day. Whereas now you're ba you basically have activity eight hours. You're now you're going to have people living there, whether in a hotel or in the condos on, in, on Gamble or in a new residential complex that will go in the Liberty Municipal Building. You're going to be seeing new retail uses. You're going to be seeing restaurants and hospitality, new hospitality spaces. That is much more desirable than having folks working in an office eight hours a, a, a day. We found that real estate in downtown Savannah is just so valuable um, that you don't want to minimize its use. And so we think that the city council's decision to sell off some of these older buildings is the right decision. And ultimately, you're going to bring more life into those buildings. You're going to be increasing the city's financial position by having in the tax base by having all this activity and you're going to help us become more efficient in the future because ultimately i'll be able to consolidate all of these employees into one campus rather than having them spread out over numerous numerous office buildings speaking of valuable real estate we got word last week that the urban land institute had uh, made some initial recommendations with a report to follow on the future of the civic center site and um, it they're basically saying the building has outlived its usefulness. Uh, the property is probably best repurposed for something else. What is your uh, initial take? I know you haven't been able to digest it completely, but what is your initial take on that recommendation? My initial reaction to the recommendation that they presented, I think it was last week at the Civic Center, was that I agreed with it. Um, we have gotten our money's worth out of that building. The building's approaching. 40 or 50 years, or I forget which one. It was designed in 1968. It is a 1960s era facility um, trying to compete in the modern world. It just doesn't do that anymore. In addition, it was really ill-conceived at the time. Um, we went in and we ignored the historical aspects of that particular area of downtown, and we... Um, you know, we took away some of the street grid. And so this is an opportunity to come in and correct the sins of our past. And it allows us, if we, if we um, accept the recommendations from the Urban Land Institute, it allows us to, to recognize the fact that the Civic Center was probably a mistake where it is. It will allow us the opportunity to go in, tear it down, restore the Oglethorpe plan, restore the street grid, and help us recapture some of that valuable land for residential purposes. I think what the ULI um, was recommending was that those properties be um, replatted and um, um, reused for predominantly a combination of mixed use, re residential and retail, um, and perhaps some sort of public spaces. And I, and I think that I agree with that that initial recommendation. I think that's the way to go. Um, because really, when you go to that Civic Center site, it just you can tell it just doesn't fit in. It was just forced upon that area. Um, I mentioned to you, you know, earlier, you know, I've asked people if they can tell me where the front entrance to this to the building is. Mm -hmm. No one can tell me where it is because it, there really is no front entrance. And so the building just does not connect to the the social framework um, and the environment in that area. And in fact, ULI referred to it as a wall. And so they said, we need to tear down that wall. And I, and I agree with that. 
And, and again, I, I look at the opportunity, and I know people have fond memories of the Civic Center, and you know what? I have fond memories of Shea Stadium in New York. Well, even in Yan- the old Yankee Stadium, and even those facilities had to come down. But again, it gives us the opportunity to look at not of what is there today or what was there yesterday, but what could be there in the future. And so tearing down the Civic Center will give us an opportunity to start from scratch and have, you know, where there's a surface parking lot today, there can be fantastic mixed-use buildings there in the future. The pushback, of course, is that people feel that we need the Johnny Mercer Theater with 2,500 seats because our other theaters in town are around 1,000 seats. I know that you've talked to some people, and so have I, who have said that 2,500 isn't exactly the sweet spot for those kind of shows, yeah. especially when you've got a new facility coming online in the arena that can handle the bigger shows. Right. So we know that the arena is going to be designed to handle the larger sporting events, but also some of the smaller intimate um, events that are typically held at the Mercer Theater. Um, the reality is that I don't think we can afford both a brand new state of the art arena and um, a 1973 Pinto, which is what I compare the Civic Center to. You know, we've gotten 150,000 miles out of that Pinto, but now it's time it's time to junk it. Um, You mentioned that, you know, in today's environment, the sweet spot tends to be somewhere between 1,100 and 1,300 seats. And we do have facilities in the city that come close to that. Um, I do think that perhaps in the future we should have a state-of-the-art performing arts theater. And I think that the Arena District is the perfect location for it and the, the space that's between the waterworks building and where the new arena is going to go is ideal for housing that type of facility sometime in the future. The reality is that 2,500 seats in the Johnny Mercer Theater is just, in today's environment, is no longer needed. Um, and it is, it is just going to be prohibitively expensive to come in and retrofit that building um, to try to make it economically competitive going into the future. Um, and I just think that we would be better off starting from scratch. As we start to wrap up here, let's talk a little bit about your experience in, in town here. I know for better or for worse, you've been a bit of a lightning rod. And I think you've kind of figured out that this is a very passionate town. And with passion comes some irrationality sometimes. Uh, what have you learned? What have you uh, – how have you adjusted your approach? What, what's – Take us, take us through two years of experiences. Well, wow, great question. Um, first, let me just acknowledge the fact that over the last two years, um, I've made mistakes. But just like I told city council the other day, I make mistakes every day. We, we all, all make do. mistakes. Yeah. And if we're not making mistakes, that means we're not doing our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is that every mistake that we have made was made out of uh, good intention. Um, and it was all part of our effort to continue to make this city better. The reason I took this job and decided to come to Savannah was because I fell in love with its architecture, the community, and its potential. Um, I took this job because I didn't, in some communities, city managers are basically caretakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not at that point in my life or in my career, nor is this community, and I didn't come here to be a caretaker. I came here because the community told me it wanted to move forward. It wanted to move forward with a new, a new arena. It wanted to move forward with, with uh, downtown revitalization, um, all of those things. So that's why I came here. I want us to continue to move forward in that direction. But again, as I said before, I acknowledge that I have made mistakes. And certainly, 
Um, the fire fee was a difficult conversation, difficult time that we went through, but we had to have that conversation. And while um, the outcome was not necessarily what I would have recommended, it it got us to acknowledge the fact that we've got to do things differently if we want to continue the current path that we're on. Or we're going to have to acknowledge that we can't just afford all the things that we say we want. Yeah, afford being the key word there. Yes. So we want great parks. We want a great police department, an expanded police department. We want the absolute best in government services throughout the entire city. We want fantastic neighborhoods. I want the same thing for the city. I am a city resident, and I'm a professional administrator. I want to be among the best, and I want that for Savannah. But we have to acknowledge that we can't continue doing things the way we've always done it and expect a different result. So as the fire fee conversation um, showed us that we have a tremendous imbalance in how we fund the operations of this city. Uh, again, and I'll, I'll just give you an example. I was looking at one particular fire uh, fire station. Um, it was something like 40% of the properties served by that particular fire station do not pay anything in property taxes. Yeah. Well, that means 60% has to foot the bill for the other 40%. So that's just one example. So again, we've made mistakes, but I also think that we've done a lot of good things over the last two years, um, and we've got the right momentum going forward into the future. And I, I understand we're going to have differences of opinion, and we've got some pretty um, transformational projects underway besides the arena, whether we're talking about NUZO or implementation of the Parking Matters Plan, you know, those are all things that we had to do in order for the city to be responsive for the needs of of the future. That said, people have questioned your commitment. I, I know that in the last couple of years you have applied for a couple of jobs. Obviously, you got to look out for number one. So let's just get that straight right now. Uh, but where are you now? And are you uh, – you talk about tremendous potential. Are you going to be a part of it? Well, you know, that's a fair question, and um, I get asked that question all the time. And, and again, um, as I said before, the, the reason, and I explained all this to city council, and they understood, and I have to tell you, they've, they've been great to, to work for. You know, when we had that public backlash, I told members of city council, and as I told people in, in the public, that, you know, I am a public servant, and I'm here as long as the public wants me here. And if the public does not want me here and they feel that I'm doing a terrible job or what have you, then I owe it to them because they're the ones that are paying my salary to move on. You know, but the interesting thing that happened during all of this is while there were um, a vocal few, um, there were, I, I think, the silent majority, because I heard from a lot of them. Those aren't the ones that wrote letters to the newspaper or Vox Populi or posted things on Facebook. But those are the ones that called me, took me aside during meetings, and asked me to stay. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I stayed. And I will continue to stay and focus on the needs of this city as long as we continue to move the city forward. Right. Um, I think we're at that at that uh, that point right now that there's still an acknowledgement that we want to move forward mm -hmm. that we acknowledge that we're competing with other great cities in this state and in this country and in this globe and we want to be competitors um and we want to succeed and i want to be part of that mm -hmm. um 
And, you know, we all want to get to the Super Bowl and we all want to get to the World Series. And it's one thing to get there and it's another thing to win. And I want to win. And I want I want Savannah to win. I want Savannah to be recognized, again, as a great place to visit, a great, a great place to live, a great place to have a business. And I want Savannah to be recognized as one of the best cities, one of the um, best-run cities in the United States. Mm-hmm. With moving forward in mind, we are taping this on the morning after Election Day. A year from now, the Wednesday after Election Day, we will have – we could potentially have changes in terms of the leaders of our city government. Mm -hmm. That could complicate things for you over the next year Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of politics. How do you handle that and, and, and how have you handled it elsewhere and how does that translate to today? Next year is certainly going to be a turbulent time for the organization and for the community. And we can't do anything about it because it's the nature of the beast. It's uh, we're going to be heavily in um, political season at that point. Uh, my job as a public administrator, and that's the beauty of the city manager form of government, is it brings in a impartiality and neutrality to all of the craziness that we're going to uh, experience over the, over the next year or so. Um, and it's already started now. Our jobs are to focus on doing the the business of government for our city. I will continue to do that. I am apolitical. I do not take sides. I work for the current nine. Um, and I will be responsive to the needs of any candidate running for office next year. That's my job. My job is to provide information. But again, ultimately, my job is to run the business. My job is not to get involved in politics. And you will find that I will not be involved in politics and my staff won't be involved in politics. That's not our role. But the one thing that I want to point out, and I think it's very important that we have this conversation, and I believe that our current structure in which all nine members of the city council are up for re-election at the same time is a very disruptive and inefficient way of governing the city. And um, I think we need to look at that going into the future. Um, and perhaps, you know, we'll have that conversation with, with this city council and because it requires a change in the charter and it requires legislative action. But it is just too disruptive to have all nine running for office at the same time. And, and, and let's, let's talk this through for a second. Let's say, you know, for whatever reason, the, the public is upset with their, their current representatives and they vote all nine out at the same time. And we have nine new political novices. Um, that are now going to be making major decisions on how to run a $400 million uh, enterprise. Um, They come in day one not having experience, not knowing all of the issues, not knowing the ins and outs of how government runs. You know, Um, there is a science behind what we do. Um, And and we have laws and we have charter issues and and all kinds of things that we, it takes a long time to educate um, elected officials on, uh, you know, elected officials are part time. Okay. And I've been doing this full time, you know, for the last 25 years, and I'm still learning every day. And so now we get an individual that just won an election. Now in, in a couple of weeks, I've got to teach them the ins and outs of, of local government. Um, and that's going to be tough. And especially if you have all nine members In other places that I've worked, the elections have always been staggered. Um, so, so that allows the organization to have continuity, um, and so you don't have this tremendous upheaval because it will it will be very dis- disruptive. So they operate like the school board does, where the school board yes. has 
they have eight seats plus president. Yes. For cycle off every two years. And I think that it's more efficient for us um, to do that. Well, Rob, it's been a great conversation. I think that people are really going to enjoy it and get some conversation going. It might complicate things for you, but it might simplify things too. Right? Yeah, and, so. and, and Adam, I want to thank you again for the invitation to come here and, and have this conversation. And let me say this. I have, you know, and this is this is not a cliche. It's not corny. I, you know, I'm an open book. And um, you may not agree with my views and my opinions, but you know what? Just like you're allowed to have opinions – I'm allowed to have opinions as well. And so um, I'm a very outspoken person, um, uh, brash, opinionated, and all that stuff. But I want the public to know that I am very approachable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, But again, we may not agree on a particular approach, and that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to disagree. And But at the end of the day, we'll still be civil about it. Yeah. We can and, have a long conversation about that. Yeah, That's yeah. for another time. So, very good. <laughs> well, thank you again for having me. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Difference Makers podcast, a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. We post a new episode every other Friday, and it's available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also publish a daily news and opinion podcast called The Afternoon Commute. Search for The Commute with At Savannah Opinion, and subscribe to our podcast today.